0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the stages and studios of the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and this week I'm bringing you a very timely discussion called The China Puzzle. It was recorded live on stage in the Playhouse in May of 2021. Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for coming to the Sydney Opera House this afternoon. My name's Edwina Throsby, and I run the Talks and Ideas program here. And we're here today to talk about China, which judging by the sellout crowd here today is something that everybody is wanting to talk about at the moment. And is that surprising when you consider how dramatically tensions between China and Australia have increased and escalated in the last year or two, from trade sanctions to diplomatic standoffs to insult trading and in the last week incredibly to threats of war, it's been a long time since things have been this fraught between Australia and China. And this is against a backdrop of human rights abuses and a control of the flow of information and um, a general atmosphere of complete mistrust. So I imagine that I'm not the only Australian who, despite reading as much as I can about this and trying to keep myself very well informed, is still incredibly confused and crying out for sources that I feel like I can trust, uh, even just some balanced analysis, which is why I'm so pleased to be introducing this event today. We have some people who I hope will be able to increase our understanding of this intensely complex situation. So we have Bill Bertels on stage today who are... Uh, in. Uh, 2015 became the Beijing correspondent for the ABC, moved to Beijing to be the China correspondent for the ABC. And he was expecting, I imagine, to stay there longer than he did because, uh, as most of us know, at the end of last year, he was abruptly recalled when the embassy determined that it was not safe for him and his partner to remain living in China. So he has uh, moved back to Australia. Uh, We also have Yong Zhang, who is a senior policy officer at the ANU. She runs the China Policy Centre down there, as well as the incredibly informative blog China Story. And hosting the session today is the wonderful Richard Feidler, who needs no introduction really, but you'll all know him from hosting the long-running radio program Conversations on the ABC. He's also the author of a couple of books, uh, Land being one of them, um, and Bill's book, uh, The Truth About China, which is out last week. I'm really keen to hear this conversation, and I'm sure you are too. So please welcome Richard, Bill and Yun.
1: Well, hello and good afternoon to everyone here. Isn't this lovely to see a packed house on a Sunday afternoon? to talk about the outer limits of Australian foreign policy. We were expecting about 15 people and a couple of (laughs) domestic pets and that was about it. So it's wonderful to see a full house and quite extraordinary. Today's session is called The China Puzzle. It's been almost 50 years now since Prime Minister Gough Whitlam uh, normalised and opened relations with the People's Republic of China. And in that time, things have changed quite a bit. We got quite a bit closer, and now we're moving quite a bit further away. Do we really have, since that time, a good understanding of what China is and what it means to us today? Is it our major trade – it is our major trading partner still, but it's also the nation that defines the heritage of so many Australians now as well. And if our understanding has advanced at all in that time, why have things become so unpleasant in recent years? Today I've got two brilliant speakers to my left here, I'm crackling a bit here, is that me or is that you guys? I'm not sure. But anyway, um, two brilliant speakers here to my left, um, possessed with enormous expertise, uh, two incredibly impressive people so that within the hour and 15 minutes we will solve the China puzzle, Um, (laughs) everything will be completely resolved to everyone's satisfaction. We have the Morrison government and Maurice Payne hanging on the line to hear us iron out all the wrinkles, and we're going to be great friends after that. Um, and we're going to be taking questions. You can see up on the, uh, on, on the placard up there. Um, you can just go to that website, www.sli.do. God knows why there's a dot and a do at the end of it, but that does work and that is correct. And uh, ask questions, and they'll come up here on this uh, digital pad here, and we'll put them to the panelists at the end, towards the end of the session this afternoon. And Bill and I will be signing books afterwards as well. So to get started, please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Yun and Bill, please. <clears throat>
2: In Chinese Communist Party meetings, um, you have to clap yourself as well. <laughs>
1: well. That's good to know. It was a appropriate way to start the thing. You know, I'm going to start with you. You migrated to Australia as an 11-year-old kid. How weird was Australia? to your eyes, when you arrived. This must have looked like such a strange place.
2: Oh, yes, of course. So, a bit of context. Um, I migrated here in 1999, and before I came to Australia, took, a, took on a plane to Australia, I'd never even been on a plane before. Um, and never been outside the country, of course. Uh, so... Um, In 1999, uh, it was just a year before the Sydney Olympics, and it was also before China um, entered the World Trade, WTO, World Trade Organization, when growth really took off. So back then, um, even though I was in Shanghai, it was still uh, very different from today's Shanghai, from what you may think of Shanghai. And when I arrived in Australia Sydney Airport, it was, wow, I I didn't know what to think. I mean, as an 11-year-old, I'd never been outside my country, and just everyone looks different. And um, and um, we moved first to Newcastle, uh, a suburb in Newcastle, and I was the only Asian kid in my school, so that was very very daunting, and I couldn't speak English at all.
1: Um, oh, not at all. You had no English when you arrived.
2: No, no. So we we were taught English in primary school from year three, but it was all like, "How do you do?" a kite, an apple, that kind of thing.
1: Where is the post office, right? Okay. Um, I didn't even know how to say the post office. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I, and then I went to uh, the school and it was I was the only Asian kid there. It was very, very, very weird... Um, situation. And I really feel like I wanted to fit in, right? Um, Because I really feel different. So I wanted to fit in. I want to simulate. And uh, a result of that is I really tried to get away from my Chinese identity for quite a while, actually. So even when I went to university in Sydney, I was really avoiding myself. I was actually intentionally avoiding hanging out with other Chinese people.
1: So you're eating the bloody Vegemite sandwiches. Um, (laughs) I
2: still don't like Vegemite, though.
1: I like Tim Tam. Well, neither do I. (laughs) I grew up here as well. Tim Tams are okay, though. That's good to know. Um, you, You planned on going into the world of finance, and I think you did that for a while, but then you left it to go into the public service and into academia. What brought about that change of heart? Don't you like money? Well, I I,
2: I decided to study commerce because I love money.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So the the reason why I study commerce is because people tell me, oh, that's the easy way to get a job, you know, if you study science. So my interest was actually in science. I'm actually studying science again right now, uh, but back then I thought uh, if you study science it's hard to get a job, you have to do a PhD, who knows if you ever get a job because of science funding in Australia. So get a commerce, easy to get a job, and it was true, uh, it was easy to get a job even though in the end I decided not to get into finance because um, of the really long working hours I didn't want to be doing what they say in China's 996 which is like working 12 hours a day, six days a week which is... What you're doing finance, so I decided to join the public service because I heard, oh, work-life balance is great there. Um, so that's actually the reason why I joined the public service. Um, and as I so it was saying before that I want to get away from my Asian identity at the time, so I didn't study, you know, region studies, I didn't study Asian studies, I studied politics, international relations, along with commerce. Um, but when I was in public service, I realised even though I didn't actually study China in universities, a lot of things. Um, other people, public service, are working in China. They, 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 I don't. I feel like there's not enough great understanding of China in public service. Um, their, their understand, a lot of people, their understanding is not as much as me. Like in terms of, um, for example, how the Chinese Communist Party works, how China China sees history, that kind of things. Um, so I was a bit concerned. Um, but then I see that. Uh, um, we At that time, we were still very positive about China. And then it changed a bit, now, we, now the government starts seeing China through more of a national security lens. And I w- my concern was actually increased, even though I was happy that um, the government is becoming more sceptical, being more critical of China. But the the seeing China through national security lens, I can see there was a lot of problems. I can see that um, there is an increased tendency to increase suspicion of Chinese Australians. And that's what prompted me to leave the public service so that I can speak out about these problems in public. When you're in the public service, you basically have no freedom of speech. Um, so and I want to have freedom of speech. I came to Australia and I, was, I, I thought I would have freedom of speech.
1: You, you said something that was a bit of an understatement there, that there weren't a lot of China uh, Chinese Australians in the upper echelons of the public service giving advice on how to engage with China at the highest levels. And this is the thing that's often commented on. Why do you think that is? Particularly when DFAT was calling out to train more people to learn to speak Mandarin yeah. when we have, what, a million people of Chinese heritage living in Australia now who speak it already? What's gone on there? What's gone wrong there?
2: Yeah, so um, even though with the success of government efforts to put in more funding to encourage Australians to take up Asian languages, What we're seeing is that still most people who study Asian languages are from um, Asian background. So if you want people who um, really want to understand China to know the language, um, you do need to recruit more Chinese Australians. Um, But that's not the case in the public service. There are a few reasons why. Um, One is that... um, the, the, the fact is that you, know, you don't see Asian Australians in public service, so Asian Australians are less likely to enter the public service oh, because the they need. don't see themselves right. yeah. there. The other reason is security clearance. Um, I gone through security clearance back in 2012. It was a very long, arduous process. Um, and I heard it's even worse these days, especially have a connection to China. Um, any connections with uh, foreign powers, especially foreign powers that's not friendly to Australia, is very much scrutinised.
1: But, but um, there's a whole lot of uh, Chinese Australians who aren't from the People's Republic that's of right, China... That's right, that's uh, right. ..who were born in, like, Penny Wong in Malaysia or Singapore... Yep. ..or Hong Kong... Yep. ..or, or those, those parts of the world. That, that, that would seem to be not a, a complicated thing to give security clearance to those Chinese yep. Australians? So
2: in those instances, it will be, be easier to get security clearance because there's also a cultural issue. Um, the workplace culture is very much still um, not multicultural. There's no, there's no encouragement of differences. Um, there's a tendency to make everyone into fit and conform into a role that you have to do do things in a certain way. Um, in a lot of, some departments are doing better than others. Um, for example, I find um, while I was in working department of prime minister and cabinet. There is a culturally um, and linguistically diverse employee networks who are supportive of public servants who are from different backgrounds. On the other hand, while I was at department of defense. It's a little bit more hierarchical and that's a little bit more difficult.
1: How about you, Bill? Let's start with you. you you're, it's, a, it's a kind of a, the, the situation in reverse for you. You started learning uh, meant to speak Mandarin. You were inspired by Kevin Rudd. I think you were only, one of the only three people ever to be inspired by Kevin Rudd, I think, on any, <laughs> any given matter. Um, um, and after getting into the detailed programmatic specificity of learning uh, Mandarin as Kevin Rudd recommended it, uh, you went, you had several stints over in China. Firstly, uh, for the state uh, news media and then with the, the ABC. What did you realise you didn't know about China once you'd spent some time there? What were some of the misconceptions you and you think many other Australians have about China that you now
3: realise were misconceptions? All right, they've given me this microphone, so I think this thing is uh, (laughs) not not working. Um, Yeah, Uh, initially, I suppose, when I first went there, you mean, sort of back in uh, 2008 and then worked in China for a couple of years, 2010-11, I pretty... Typical sort of Australian background in that I didn't really have a grounding in Chinese history uh, at all, not even the sort of 101. And for that reason, um, the narratives over in China, the historic narratives about, I suppose, the most prominent recent one is the century of humiliation. Uh, You know, China's mistreatment at the hands of various foreign powers in different ways from... You know, the British taking Hong Kong to Japan in the Second World War and the Germans up in Qingdao and it goes on. Um, uh, it's, you know, interesting to sort of hear that for the first time because you don't really get that in, a, in an HSC education over here. But also to... Um, I mean, you could, I suppose, if you studied Chinese history, but um, it was not put it this way, it wasn't compulsory back when I was doing it. Um, but I suppose the other thing is... I first went over in 2008, just before the Olympics... And um, I, I do remember very vividly, you know, the, the air pollution issue um, was worse back then than it is now. And, yeah, it was pretty pretty bloody bad. But I remember these American... Uh, I don't know what they, they did. American athletes of some description, runners or something, and they got off the plane at Beijing Airport and they've already got the masks on. And this is them sort of coming out of the plane into the air-conditioned, probably filtered airport terminal. And I remember sort of the pictures going around on Chinese TV. And, you know, I'm not living there at the time. I'm just staying there for a couple of months to learn the language. And I could sort of understand, like I I was, you know, a foreigner, but I thought, for God's sake, you know, at least get out of the airport before you put the mask on. It's not that dire over here. So I could really understand when there's all this talk about, ah, China pollution this and China human rights that. And I could really get a sort of taste for it uh, that first time I was over there. Um, to see why there was such um, consternation and such uh, anger uh, about the way the country was portrayed. A lot of it steeped deeply back into this historical narrative. Thing is, of course, over time, my, uh, my dealings with the Chinese state matured. And um, <laughs> these days I probably see it quite differently to how I saw it, you know, 12, 13 years ago.
1: Australia opened normal diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China in 72, 73 with the election of Gough Whitlam as Prime Minister. And we – both countries had come through these interesting periods. Australia was coming out of the White Australia policy, and China was at the fag end of the Cultural Revolution at that point. And not good starting places for either nations to build a friendship, but we did build a friendship. Uh, and it was kind of unusually strong. Like, I recall images of Bob Hawke playing tennis with Zhao Zhang uh, and Chinese leadership. Um, there was real warmth uh, uh, at that at the highest level there. Was there anything real about that to your mind, Bill? Is, is that a genuine coming together? Or are we just going, oh, well... Or, or was it more like we were sort of united against the Soviet Union back then and the enemy of our enemy is a uh, friend? You yeah.
3: know, 1970s, right? No, I don't really think so. I, um, I always... Look at the whole you know two countries that have really not much to do with each other. You know you can Of course you can talk about you know the the Chinese in the in the Victorian gold fields and you can talk about the Australian journalists like w h Donald in china but really it 's just not that culturally or politically close at all, and so that 's why you look back at those uh, images of you know Whitlam going to china and it 's there 's such a big deal about it because it is so ridiculously strange that uh, this would have been the, the visit that breaks the ice. So I always felt like things were at such a low base in terms of common understandings and cultural links that yes it really boomed but it boomed from a low base and there was always going to be a reset, not a reset, a correction. Like a is, stock market boom in other words, you're saying like totally a... Totally, yeah. Like, I, like I mean, you know, It's like Bitcoin. Right. Um, it's just kind of, has gone right. completely up and then the crash is in the last, well, couple of years for the Australia-China relationship. But I I was astounded, I suppose, in 2015, 2016, just how close things had got. And I thought, wow, these two political systems and countries are really vastly different. And I'm kind of surprised. You know, this was a point when, you know, the biggest political donor, I think, was Huang Xiangmo, a Chinese national who was running the the Chinese government's main influence-peddling body, the Peaceful Reunification Council, who was the biggest political donor to both parties, I think, at the time. It's just astounding stuff. Just astounding. And so... Um... There are stories of the, of the first trip of the Hawke
1: government to China, the first Bob Hawke visit as Prime Minister to China, where journalists all got together from the People's Republic and Australian journalists all met over a banquet and the journalist was asked to sing the Australian National Anthem and a journalist fam- famously got to his feet and started singing, I like aeroplane jelly, <laughs> aeroplane jelly. Like, that's how good it was, you know. <laughs> it, was, it, it was on that basis. As, as time went on, in 1989 we have the Tiananmen Square Massacre, China... The regime earned a lot of international condemnation. And then it sort of got back on track. Two years later, the Soviet Union falls. Do you you think China drew a lesson from the fall of the Soviet Union? Like, this is what happens when you liberalise. You have a figure like Gorbachev who liberalised the Soviet Union and the whole thing just fell in a heap. And that was the end of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, more or less, certainly in government. Did China draw strong lessons from the Gorbachev experiment?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, It's the one thing that we often overlook here in Australia is that China, they draw a lot of lessons from history. And one of the most important lessons that the Chinese upper leadership often refers to is um, the experience of Soviet Union and how they need to really avoid that. And and they really look to the Soviet Union... um, uh, for lessons even before that. You know, when, um, after the, the death of Stalin and uh, the whole basically rectifying and uh, the history associated with Stalin, Mao also drew lessons from that. So really the Communist Party looked to Soviet Union for lessons to draw.
1: Never take a back step, right.
2: Um, so it, it sees, I think it sees what happened to Soviet Union as a lessons to avoid. Um, but the problem with... The way they cast history is that they really look at history through their own lens, and sometimes um, they re, they they write they see history through one lens only, and they re- rewrite it as well. So they may not always learn the correct what, you, what we may think is the correct lesson from history. So from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective, the lesson from the breakup of Soviet Union is that you know liberalization must be done. Uh, very slowly one, but also the party must always be in control. So even if you have economic liberalisation, political liberalisation um, should be avoided and the party must always be in control.
1: Paul Keating used, has often said, and so has Bob Carr, that the Chinese Communist Party deserves a huge amount of credit for lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Is that true? How true do you think that is? Did, I mean, sometimes I, I think whether the best thing the Chinese Communist Party was, it stopped getting in the way of the natural, titanic economic and cultural energy of the Chinese people themselves. Let me just throw that open to... Bill, what do, you, what do you think of that?
3: This is a line you don't hear said about other countries. Um, because before China racked up huge amounts of debt to build, build, build and pump up its economy, South Korea did it. Taiwan did it. Japan did it. China's not the first country to do it in Asia. It's just it's the biggest. Uh, but you never hear, you know, the Japanese government pulled 100, 100 million people out of poverty or the Taiwanese government pulled 20 million people out of poverty. It is, it is a line that is perpetuated by the Chinese state. And uh, whether it's true or not, I just find it awfully odd that ex-politicians in particular like to repeat it so often. I mean, wouldn't you question it a bit? Um, Certainly the first 20-odd years after 1949, the party got in the way with the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, et cetera. But, you know, I always think the Chinese people themselves, they they got themselves rich. Um, You
1: know, know, the reason why I say this is because I lived in Brisbane for a while and people would say in Brisbane, they talk about the former Lord Mayor of Brisbane, Clem Jones, and they go, say what you like about Clem Jones, but he left uh, Brisbane with a proper sewerage system, as if he hadn't come (laughs) along, everyone would be, you know going in buckets or something, you know. Thank, thank God Clem came along and saved Brisbane. I mean, it's, it seems it's a bit like that. Like, but this was going to happen anyway.
3: It also appears to be a boilerplate line. Um, if you're trying to uh, ingratiate yourself to the Chinese state for business or political reasons, it seems to be like a safe thing you know you can say, which the, you know, if there's an MFA official, Ministry of Foreign Affairs official monitoring what you say, they, they write it down. <laughs> And uh, somebody said it the other day on q and A. I I think it was the head of the Australia Business China uh, Chamber uh, Council, and he said that line, he trotted it out in the midst of some chat about Xinjiang or something, and I sort of thought it's just such an such a old cliche, whether or not it's true, like come up with something a bit more original.
1: I think one of the first signs there was a fracture in the relationship between Australia and China was uh, in 2008 during the Olympic torch relay when it was on its Australian leg, uh, there were protests... Uh, against China uh, over Tibet and Tibetan rights. How was that seen in China, Yuan? How was that portrayed to uh, Chinese people in in China?
2: Yeah, well, the Chinese information system inside China, obviously, is very much controlled. Um, There is a lot of censorship. It's not saying that, uh, you know unwelcoming or unpleasant stories doesn't get through. They do get through, but it is very much controlled and censored. And a lot of stories are filtered through the the government's narrative first. So um, with the torch relay and a lot of other similar incidences like that, the government's official narrative is that there are those... um, outside foreign forces that wants to basically see China weakened um, and those, they are disrupting this, you know, China's uh, glorious Olympics and they're just f- evil foreign forces that uh, basically have something against China. So concerns about, um, say, human rights and things like that with the internet and now in Xinjiang are brushed aside and merely see through a lens of they are disrupting.
1: And, and how is that put? Is it the reason why Australians are making these protests is because they're so racist or because they resent China's growing power? How, well, how that it's portrayed? not just
2: in Australia at the time. During the torch relay, there was a lot of disruption of torch relay in other countries as well, including, I think, in Europe. Um, so it's not framed um, as an Australia-specific problem. It's more framed more like Western forces. Um, they just want to put China down.
3: Is it the same with Hong Kong. So the, the, the big narrative that was fed on the mainland about the Hong Kong protests was that they're all, being, all these Hong Kongers are being put up to it by hostile foreign forces, usually the Americans. And, you know, just sort of when you're on the ground there, it's just ludicrous. But it is, isn't it? It's just pull, and the Russians do it too with Putin. It's just pull it out every single time. If there's a problem, it, it's the foreigners. It's the hostile foreigners whipping up the problem.
1: For years in that period between 1989 and 2008, the United States was really on the forefront saying that this is the the ultimate evolution is liberal democracy and a vibrant market economy. And then there was the global financial crisis of 2008, and a whole lot of people all over the world re- realised that the US system was being run by cocaine-addled gamblers who'd built a gigantic house of cards that just collapsed in a heap. Um, <laughs> what, did, what did China uh, conclude from that? Did, uh, how much did the 2008 economic crisis damage the American model in the eyes of China, Yuan?
2: It damaged a little bit, but I I wouldn't really say it's damaged too much. Um, It it, it is one point where, you know, China did... uh, managed pretty well, um, but they, they also did have to put in a lot of economic um, stimulus as well. Um, so in that sense, um, it was perceived as a, way, a weakness of the, uh, of the American capitalist system. So in comparison, the Chinese system will look a bit more favourable, um, but still, uh, look, it is a global financial crisis. I don't think it is a, it's an appropriate time for them to really gloat at that point in time. Yes. Yeah, but, but
1: the economy is quite different. The Chinese economy is quite different. For years, the United States have been saying you need to liberalise, you need to get uh, the government's hands out of the free market of China. And I think, uh, was it just the People's Republic of China and Australia were one of the very, very few nations to emerge from that crisis without a recession? Bill, what do you understand by that? What, how much the 2008 crash discredited Discredited that idea, American idea of a liberal market economy in the eyes of the Chinese elites and the Chinese people?
3: Yeah, I mean, I haven't really sat down with the, uh, the governor of the Bank of China or anything to discuss this uh, over <laughs> beer or coffee, but from what I can gather, um, yeah, you know, obviously that, that was pretty pivotal uh, in in Chinese government thinking about the flaws in the sort of Western model. Um, That's been repeated, uh, I think, officially in a lot of writings over the years. Um, uh, Yeah, and and so you look at... I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, really, but you look at today, uh, China's just completed the digitisation of the yuan... Uh, they call it a cryptocurrency. It's not really a cryptocurrency. It's just a digital version of the, the yuan. But, um, you know, they, in, in ways the system financially can be really flexible. They can get on the front foot and do things at very quick speed. Um, also, Bitcoin. They've got a huge aversion to Bitcoin, the Chinese government. They've been banning exchanges and trying to trying to flush it out of the Chinese uh, economic system, although it's, you know, not, not too successfully. But the point is, you know, there's this sort of flexibility I'm always impressed with, with, uh, in some ways, of course, things are very slow. Um, This is kind of a bit dry, isn't it? But they try to internationalise the Renminbi and they've been struggling (laughs) to do that for years. So it doesn't all work. But, you know, I I always think economically with China, for a country that's obviously not particularly communist in its uh, economic system these days, there's quite a degree of flexibility in, in what they do.
1: Last time I was in China was in March 2019 and my wife and I were in a bar in Shanghai and we got talking to the woman who ran the bar and she spoke very good English. And she said, oh, are you American? And we said, oh, no, no, we're Australians. And she said after a while, um, tell me, why is it that President Xi Jinping is banned in your country? <laughs> and I, I didn't want to sort of flatly contradict her, but I said, oh, I, I don't think that's right. I think uh, President Xi Jinping has actually been invited to address our parliament, our national parliament, on two occasions, which is considered the highest honour we can offer a foreign dignitary. And she looks sort of confused and a bit distressed. And then just ended the conversation and went and talked to some other people at the other end of the bar. What are people told about Australia in, uh, in, in, in China, about what, what I, goes on I don't know where here? that
3: one came from. I, I never heard anybody say um, <laughs> Xi Jinping's banned from Australia. but um, She's picking oh, up a vibe, though, clearly, though. Yeah, you're yeah. Up, yeah you, know, you get the details a bit wrong or something. <laughs> she might have heard something and kind of mixed it up a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, my first impression is um, I don't think there would be an event held in Beijing or Shanghai equivalent to this, what we're doing right now, about Australia.
1: Oh, no. Heck no. <laughs> is that because of because freedom of speech issues no, no, or no, no, because no, no, we're no. just not worth the candle? I mean...
3: We're, no, no. I mean, they, we... We, we, <laughs> we're small fish. We're yeah, small oh, fish. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah now, we're not front of mind of people in Shanghai all the time. <laughs> the, the, I don't think they're sitting in bars going, well, what's Australia going to think of this? I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone's under any illusions about that. The
3: amount of attention that we pay to China in the press in uh, general discussion is uh, not reciprocated, put it that way. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I suppose when I went back, you know, going back even further, nobody had a particularly strong impression at all. And when I was working, I worked in the Xinhua News Agency for a uh, a year back in about 2010, um, right in the belly of the beast of China's propaganda efforts when I was young and needed the money. No, no, I just... I needed the visa, actually. Um, And back then, everyone thought I was Canadian, so, because, you know, you know, Dashan, there's this uh, guy oh, yes. from, like, the 80s and 90s, this Canadian guy, and he went over about 20 years before it was cool to do this, and he learnt very good uh, Beijing, Lao Beijing, the Chinese, and he learnt crosstalk, this sort of comedy art, I suppose you'd call it, and, um, you know, he was a novelty. He was a foreigner speaking, doing very good kind of crosstalk, in old Beijing accent, and they chucked him on TV, and he became a massive star, the most famous foreigner in China. But he's Canadian right? For some reason, in, back in about 2010, everyone would say, oh, you're from Australia. Do you know Darshan? He's from Australia. <laughs> what? I go, I know who he is, and he's not from Australia. He's from <laughs> Canada. And, and so back then, I would say, not many people had a particularly strong impression of the place. 2015, I get back for the ABC... And um, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people in these middle-class big cities, oh, I've got a cousin in Melbourne, mm. I've got a sister studying at uh, university in Sydney. Which one? I don't know. But one of the universities, you know, there were quite a lot of links. Um, the impressions were all a bit surface level, but they were good. Ah, oh, Australia, good fresh food, nice air... Friendly people. Kangaroos. Kangaroos, you know. Uh, and then in more recent years, uh, you have had a concerted effort by the state media, by the government, to be pushing out these messages of, you know, the headlines on your phone, you know, you get your little whatever it is, ABC or Channel 9 news, news alerts if you subscribe on the app, and the equivalents in China, and you get these little uh, notifications saying, Australia has again smeared China. Click here to find out what they've done. And so people were confused. People were saying to me when I was still there, the heck are these two countries fighting about? It? And it's, it's kind of complicated and if you didn't have the, the time and energy to really look into it, I, I think a lot of people were bemused. They were getting this impression from, the, from China's government that we want to have a beef with Australia and we're going to keep pumping out, you know, comments and uh, headlines about Australia offending us and smearing us. But I don't really think there's a broad impression in China today that, gee, that Australia's a terrible place. I think there's just more confusion about this whole political spat.
1: Yeah, what do you think, June? Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think... Uh um, in China, the impression of Australia, as you said, is mostly a lot of it to do with people to people links because there are so many international students from China in Australia. So, if you are from a big city, especially, um, if you're from middle class, um, then their impression is often what these people who are in Australia feed them back into their family. In that sense, most of it can be, it's probably quite positive. Um, yeah, but with uh, politics, I mean, politics. Um, Not everyone is interested in international relations or foreign affairs, for one, and two, not everyone is convinced by what they see on the news. So there are still a lot of scepticism of what they read in the news as well. So people often ask, oh, is this really what's happening in Australia? Um, So then I have to kind of explain to them, actually, maybe not. Um, So, yeah.
1: You've said uh, in the past that... uh there's a perception in China that the Australian media and the Western media in general, but specifically Australian media, is really unfair to China. How do, how do they know? Then Are they sitting around watching the project <laughs> <laughs> of an evening? Yeah. I mean, how do they no. know? How, how do
3: they perceive that there's this unfairness? Um, well, just a bit of context. The ABC is uh, blocked. The ABC website is blocked. The app is blocked. The ABC Listen app is blocked. News.com is blocked. The Australian is not blocked. The SMH... Oh, the Sydney really? Morning, when, I, when I last <laughs> left, the, the Sydney Morning Herald, they'd been running, the Chinese government had been running a concerted campaign against the Herald over an article that they wrote, you know, the, the, remember the Wang Li Lichung thing. Uh. However, it wasn't blocked, so it's inconsistent. Um, it, it all, it, look, I don't want to generalise, but it, it's very top-down, this messaging, um, that, uh, you know, the Western media is always out to get China. It's always, you know, more is like the number one buzzword you see the foreign ministry bang on about, smearing China, smearing China, smearing China. And if you repeat this enough, I actually think the whole Trump presidency is like a very, very good insight for a Western audience into kind of understanding some of the methods that have worked so well for the Communist Party in terms of public information. You know, Trump, very different in many ways, but that term fake news, I first heard fake news, Jia Xinwen, back in 2010 in China as justification for censoring the internet. We must have strict internet controls to uh, otherwise you'll have fake news, you'll have poor quality information, you'll have rumours. This was a justification that was used and quite commonly accepted by people uh, for one of the justi- one of the many justifications for censorship. And then to, to hear Trump use similar language not to censor the news but to delegitimise the media in the eyes of his supporters to the point where... Uh, Somebody can write a damning report about Trump, and if you're a big hardcore Trump supporter, you say, "I don't care what's in that report. You're the hostile MSM media. You're out to get Trump." This is the same techniques which have worked quite well for many, not all, but many people in China. If you repeat it enough from the opening, you do those Bloomberg reports from years ago about the sort of the family elite wealth of people like Wen Jiabao. And you might discuss that with people in in China and some people would say, ah, they're all corrupt or whatever, but you'd have other people saying, well, you can't trust it, it's the New York Times. So, you know, if you repeat it enough, and there might be some truth to it, but if you repeat it enough, a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people, will believe it.
1: President Xi Jinping is often described as the most powerful man in the world and that's a pretty good argument to make, I think. Nonetheless, if he were able to do, as it's often said of, him, he can just snap his finger and make things happen. He doesn't need to go through the, the, the terrible, boring process of wrangling things, pushing through, through Parliament. If he I mean,
3: wants. I mean, if he wants a, you know, a coffee or something, <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, sure. a yeah, coffee, yeah.
1: But, but for example, <laughs> there is still smog over Beijing, you know, and it does reappear. It might not be as bad now, or it, it tends to go up and down. But if it were that easy to get rid of this thing that's actually choking his capital and emba- as an international embarrassment... He doesn't seem to be able to do that or want to do that. Um, what are, are there more limits to his power? I suppose is what I'm asking. Than we might commonly assume.
2: Well, there are always priorities, right? Um, if he makes uh, clean air the top priority of his government, then I'm sure he can make it happen. But then there's comes at the cost there could be effect to economic growth. Um, so, like all public policy questions, um, it's a question of priority. You, you, it's not possible to make everything a priority, unfortunately. Um, so, but the are there breathability
1: of the air ought to be a very, very high priority, just, I would have just thought.
3: let jump in there. The, the air yeah. quality has improved in Beijing a lot over the past 10 years. It really, really has. It's not, it's not you know, Sydney level because there's 22 million people there. But just on that, uh, I, I would say uh, you, you go back 10 years and out of seven days, you'd have five smoggy days now you're down to probably about two. It's a significant difference. I suppose I'm using that as a point to mean. raise a point, though. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: What, what, how is his, is his power circumscribed? Is there... Can he really just decree things and make them happen if he chooses to do so? Or are, are there other forces around him that do uh, constrain his power somewhat? So
2: there are a few ways to look at this. One is his uh, power to make a policies. in that he does have a lot of power. So obviously the top policy decision-maker... Uh, making body the Politburo Standing Committee, they're all men. Um, supposedly, they, they make all the decisions, but he has centralised a lot of power around him. So he can make a lot of decisions, um, can make things happen in policy. But implementation, then that has to be done at different levels. So even if he makes a decision at a central level, um, the local government can still have a, some room to move where they can... Um, if it depends on what policy it is, they could resist some of the policy decisions, they could um, not do anything, Um, and um, that's only within the government. And then there's the whole society, the companies and corporations, and his power to make them to move into one direction is even less. So although he has a lot of power, he has a lot of power to make changes, he doesn't have absolute power.
1: Going back to the relationship between Australia and China, Uh, Sometimes you hear people will make the argument that Australia's really mucked this up. We didn't have to go on the front foot calling for uh, World Health Organisation inquiry into the origins of the Wuhan virus. Um, Bill, are we giving Australia too much agency in all of this? I mean, Australia doesn't really settle the terms of the relationship between us and and Beijing. What are your thoughts on that?
3: I feel there are people here, many of them ex-politicians and diplomats, who are so assured in their criticisms of the Australian government's handling of China, yet they're so deferential when talking about how the Chinese side has handled the Australia relationship. And by that, I mean, and I've used this example before, um, but the whole thing about China not taking Australia's call um, to discuss any of the problems in the relationship... Uh, And I saw a lot of press coverage at the time, a lot of commentary where people would just automatically jump to the conclusion that at the time, Simon Birmingham was the trade minister, that uh, how hapless are the Australians? They can't even get the counterpart in China to pick up the phone and talk, talk about China's actions. How hapless are the Australians? You know, China's stance on that is literally... We're a hundred percent right they say, you know, we we you know, Wan Chan Mei or Shuma, you know, we do not have any any responsibility for the problems in the relationship. That is the official line. All responsibilities are in those Australian side, and because um, I've I've heard these lines so many times at the pro- <laughs> at, the, at the, memorise uh, yeah. them, you know, Oh, Fang, you know, the way they speak, um, and. Uh, And so Australia must correct its wrong actions and drop its Cold War mentality and take off its uh, tinted glasses as a precondition to even talking about these problems. Now, this is gaslighting behaviour. This is, we will ban all your uh, your beef and there's bugs in the bar, the the barley's being subsidised and there's pests in the timber and the lobsters all have mercury in them and the wine is being dumped. We we know these are not the real reasons. They don't even really try to pretend they are the real reasons, but they still will not admit. They still... Because otherwise you could sue them at the WTO. And so, on one hand, they're taking these actions. The other hand, they're not being honest about them. And then the third thing is they will not speak in what you know china always talks about civilization and wenming the you know all this sort of stuff not have the sort of civilized approach of actually talking about the damn thing and saying these are our grievances with you instead it's you must change this that and the other before we even talk to you about what we're doing to you I don't think that's the Australian side's fault. And I understand the argument, well, if Australia just didn't do this or that, then maybe the Chinese wouldn't be so pissed off. But the reality is one side, the Australian stance at the moment is, hey, we're happy to get on the phone and talk about these problems. The other side is we'll lie to you about the reasons that we're, we're restricting your trade and we will not talk to you until you change some of your policies towards us. I don't know why Australians are so quick to, to whack ourselves uh, about that sort of behaviour.
2: Oh, here here's another line you forgot. It's uh, uh, the the person that ties the bell must untie it. Another one, yeah. Yeah, um, but I think there is a mirror to that because I do also hear from the Australian government's official narrative is that. China is totally to blame, and Australia is 100% correct. The um, Australian government also takes no responsibility for any action. So it's a both sides. They say, basically saying it's all your problem. We have nothing to do with this. It's you
3: solve it. The Australians don't say, we won't talk to you. They say, can we please talk to you? We've put in a formal request. The Chinese side say, No.
2: That's true, that's true. I I get really
3: fed up with this whole, frustrated with this whole, well, there's blame on both sides. Of course there's blame on both sides. But only one side, only one side is willing to actually talk about it. The other side is literally saying, change, literally correct your wrong actions, then we'll talk to you. And then I just see the press coverage is all like, well, the Australians are so helpless.
1: (laughs) Jason Yates Lee wrote a piece from the Sydney Morning Herald.
3: Sorry, it's a bugbear of mine. I've yeah, been covering clearly. this stuff closely for a couple of years now. And it drives me nuts.
1: Jason Yatzenly wrote a piece that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald recently, and he said, there are ways we can improve the relationship without, uh, uh, that will help China save face and no would we'll, yeah. we'll not get in the way of our core values or what we perceive our supposed core values to be. And one example, he said, is... I'm quoting here, Jason wrote, if our Prime Minister were to announce a border opening by saying... We are opening in a safe way to these countries because they have managed the virus well and included China on that list. That would be, he said, a profoundly face giving to China's government and might go some way to become a circuit breaker for rising tensions. Importantly, it would be neither confected nor a capitulation to the CCP's economic intimidation. It would be based on fact and in clear advancement of Australia's interests. Unfortunately, however, we don't live in a world without politics, and this is all very unlikely to happen. Why is this unlikely to happen? Is it because neither side wants the relationship to get better at this point? Let me just throw that open.
2: Well, I... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it's although I think the, sign, proposal, it? It, it, the proposal itself, I think that is possible to happen um, There are a lot of countries uh, dealing with a coronavirus pandemic quite well I think the, the why we're not throwing open our borders is more of a domestic problem In that we have become quite uh, somewhat, we, we feel safe when we are here and everyone else is outside, we segregated from the rest of the world. I think that's more of a domestic issue than a foreign relation problem. But um, why are we not improving our broadly, broad, more broadly why we're we not really improving our bilateral relationship? I think there is no political willingness um, in Australia and in China to really improve the bilateral relationship. I think we are both, both sides really want to first work out who to blame first. Um, And someone must first take the step and both don't want to take the first step and be seen as the weak one.
1: Does Australia strike you as, the Australian government strike you as being interested in improving relations or do you sense that there's been a decision taken? We we have to draw a line in the sand. We actually have to have a nasty, um, fight's not a good word, but a nasty uh, interaction and forceful exchange of views.
3: Struggle. Xi Jinping's favourite word. Struggle. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's what I've heard from my colleagues in Canberra at Parliament House covering it is that with inside the Morrison government, there's, they're really pissed off. They're just at the point where they've kind of had enough and that kind of reflects some of the language, some of the stances that we're seeing on China um, in recent times. But, you know, as I just said, the Australian side is um, requesting for phone calls and talks which are being rebuffed. So I don't think the Australian side is trying to trash the relationship. Rather, what you just said, the, the, what, how I interpret it is, is that they've made an assessment that if you don't set the parameters now, if you don't set the framework now on how to deal with China, then um, for the, you know, this year, next year, next decade, the decades ahead... You're giving, for example, the Chinese government... Let's look at trade. You're giving the Chinese government an expectation that Australia is a country that can be economically coerced. You just hit their lobsters and their wine and they'll back down. We've seen it happen before. Whereas if you set the framework... And the other thing, of course, it's a little bit inside baseball, but the BRI stuff the other day, uh, you might have uh, seen in the news that the government um, basically scuttled a Victorian deal between uh, China and Victoria... Uh, not a particularly substantial deal, it was an MOU, but an infrastructure deal. And um, the way the Australian government sees it is um, the Chinese government came to Australia back in maybe 2016, 2017, we've got this infrastructure program called Belt and Road, it's really important to us, it's so important they've written it into the constitution of the Communist Party, so they've immortalised it. That's how important it is politically for China. We want everybody to sign up. And the Australians said, thanks, but no thanks. You know what? We're happy to work on projects in third countries. We're happy... We encourage infrastructure in the region. Uh, you know, all the supportive, nice diplomatic things you're supposed to say... But they actually said, thanks, but no thanks, we won't sign on. We'll run our own infrastructure program. And the way the Australian ambassador to Beijing, Graham Fletcher, put it the other day in, in this uh, forum, he said, and what did China do? Did it respect Australia's choice? No, it did not. The Chinese government then ran off to Victoria and said, well, how about you sign it? And the idea would probably be, let's see if we can get all the states one by one to sign, a, sign up. And before you know it, we've got them all signed up. And the Australian government said, we can't do that in China. If we run off to Guangdong province and say, look, you've got a lot of wine distributors there. They're gonna be out of work if you don't if you obey Beijing's command not to let any Australian plot. Can't you just keep your wine shipments going into Guangdong? No, that does not happen. The Chinese government does not let that happen. So the Australian government decided, look, we're going to treat China in a reciprocal way and not allow unis and states and so forth to freelance on diplomacy. Now, you know, I know there are critics of it and so forth, but the end result was they cancelled the BRI deal. That sends a message to Beijing that you will not run arounds and try and undermine our united foreign policy stance by going off to the states. You won't do it this year, you won't do it next year, you won't do it next decade. And this from now on is, is something that the Chinese state won't be able to do. So I think they're not trying to trash the relationship, but they're trying to really set some pretty strong ground rules now so that going ahead for the, the decades to come, as China gets stronger, there are bottom lines in the sand.
2: I I do have a different take from that. I I do think Australian government is trashing the relationship. I think it is also quite willing to trash the relationship because it thinks that there is no more to lose. I think from Australian government's perspective, um, Chinese government has um, already punished a lot of Australian industries in terms of trade and... Uh, obviously, iron ore is one area they haven't, but it's something that they actually need, so they're not going to actually do anything about that. Um, and because they think, of, as you will say, they, they are very, very frustrated with the Chinese government, um, but um, they, they think the Chinese government has done everything it can, so now they can just... Uh, um, in one sense, they can play a bit of a domestic politics with this, and I was going to raise the BRI issue before as well. Um, there is one thing to say, well, should Victoria sign up to BRI? That's a fair question. But the, the thing is, Victoria has signed up to BRI, so, so that question is now irrelevant. The question was, um, should um, the Commonwealth Government cancel the agreement? Now, the thing is, the memorandum of understanding has no legal force whatsoever. Um, it does not oblige uh, the Victorian government or the Commonwealth government to do anything. Any investment China makes in Australia will still have to abide by any normal rules. So, basically, it is just a piece of paper. Um, so, w-
1: But still, any kind of the, uh, thing that a state government signs up to even the people's republic of victoria even <laughs> whatever they sign up to um, has, still has to be in accordance with Australian foreign policy uh, and that's that's absolutely and the government And at the time when government. it was
2: signed the commonwealth government was also quite positive about the BRI it was not actually um yeah. as they are doing now so much against the BRI. So at the time, it was still consistent with the Australia. They weren't signing
3: up to it, though. No, they were not. Which is the, the most important thing of all.
2: But also the fact that the Prime Minister said that Australia... It's hard to remember <laughs> who
1: it is from day to day, isn't it, in Australia? <laughs> Physical <The>, chairs. <course. laughs> yeah.
2: The Prime Minister said Australia should speak with one voice when... Um, Basically, he was promoting the legislation of the Foreign Relations Act, and I totally disagree with that. I think Australia is a democratic country, and in democratic countries, we should allow a lot of many different voices to speak. To say we should all speak with one voice, that is a tactic of authoritarian countries. Um, So I, I totally disagree with that we should all Um, say the same thing when it comes to foreign policy.
1: Well, more interestingly in the last few weeks, and this is something that's going to come up again and again, is that, and I can't for the life of me understand why this is happening. Um, I, I, I get why there's a hawkish stance towards China within the federal government, but the word war has been used. It's been bandied about, even by, astonishingly, by senior public servants. Why, what's the national interest you can perceive in a government wanting to do that? Is it a deliberate thing to use that, bloody word, or is it just indiscipline on the part of the federal government? What's your sense of that from your position deep inside the federal cabinet? Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I, I, I don't know about all the sort of um, the, the mechanics of what's going on in Canberra. People have various theories about that sort of stuff. Um, you know, is it signalling to the Americans that, hey, look, you, you guys need to think about Taiwan I don't really know. You can read about that elsewhere. Um, You're in Canberra. You would have a better idea than me. But um, certainly I think the fact we're talking about it now um, is not a bad thing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, a lot of Australians, the idea that there could be some sort of conflict between China and Taiwan is so out of sight, so out of mind, so remote that nobody really thinks it's likely. And the, I mean, the amount of military drills that the PLA, the amount of jets they're sending around Taiwan on a weekly basis these days, they're sailing aircraft carriers around the, around the island. Um, nobody talks about war with Taiwan more than the PLA, uh, talking about how separatist forces are doomed to fail and so forth. Also, too, you've got the 2050-2049 uh, goal of the Chinese government to have Taiwan under its control. That's only three decades away. So... The idea that there could be some sort of conflict, I don't think it's likely in the next little while, but, you know, Xi Jinping is a guy who wants a legacy... And there's no greater legacy than somehow taking Taiwan. And I know they'd rather do it with psychological warfare, and you know, but it's not going too well for them. The Taiwanese are not exactly uh, thrilled with the idea of the, the, the outstanding offer of one country, two systems. And you look at Hong Kong and go, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, nah, <laughs> nah." No. So, let,
2: let all all two country, the, one so, system.
3: So, yeah. so, I, so I, I really think it's it's something that um, by the, the some members of the federal government raising it and talking about it, you know, they might have been a little bit not particularly delicate in the the phrasing, but the fact that everyone's talking about it, thinking about it, and thinking about whether Australia would have anything to do with it, uh, would we have a role in it or not, I don't think that's a bad thing because I don't think the possibility of a conflict is as remote as I think many people might have suggested.
1: Yeah, well,
2: I I, I think, so war is serious business, so I agree that um, people should think about war, the possibility of war. Um, but I think the way it is raised, as um, in Secretary Pizzullo, the, the talk about warriors, talk about the drum beats of war, I think that is totally irresponsible. You know, When we think about war, we should really think about what goals we're trying to achieve, what prices we're prepared to pay, and um, you know, um, what sort of things we need to do in order to prepare for such war. And those are things war planners and strategists that's their day to day job they think about war in a very serious um, in a very serious way but the the whole narrative the whole rhetoric of uh, drum beats of war is quite irresponsible and I think the it's quite likely that It's more of a domestic um, issue in that, you know, we know uh, um, Minister Dutton is new to the job and uh, from within Canberra, there's rumours of flying of uh, Secretary Pizzullo wanting the Secretary of Defence job. Right. So there are domestic motivations for them to make that kind of um, uh, rhetoric. Um, But in
1: raising those expectations, are they doomed to be thwarted? Down the track, I mean, Hugh White, conversation with him, his view as as a strategist is this is how uh, a a military occupation of Taiwan by the PRC would play out. Uh, The United States would be informed, the president would be very concerned, he'd say we've got a carrier presence in the Pacific and we move it towards Taiwan, and then he'd be advised that China has exceptionally strong uh, missile systems now, land-based, that could absolutely take out their carrier group. All of the United States' force projection comes from carriers which are very vulnerable to the weapon systems that China has put in place. So then you, the United States uses its air force to take those out. And now we're talking about a situation where will China retaliate by launching nuclear weapons against the west coast of the United States? And at that point, the President goes, you know what, I think I've got to go and, you know, wash the, the, the dog right now and I, I, I'm a bit too busy to take care of this. So if there is a military occupation of Taiwan, the li- most likely result is no defence action whatsoever. It'll be like the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in '68. Nothing, nothing ultimately done. But sanctions go into place. China is, is becomes a, a prior of the world. What, 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 do you, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I'd just say that if the PLA could have invaded Taiwan, they probably would have done it 30 years ago. It's really difficult to get ships across the Taiwan Strait. The Yanks have a lot of drones. I'm sure those drones uh, might have the capability to take out some PLA ships. So I'm not sure if the current calculations that um, that people like Hugh White make uh, are necessarily how things would play out. Um, I'm not, I've seen war gaming, which suggests China would certainly win, but at what cost? And Xi Jinping, one of his favourite statements on Taiwan, is "Zhongguo and da Zhongguo." You know, Chinese don't fight Chinese. Yeah. I don't know how reassuring that is. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not reassuring for Australia. Yeah, but that that sort of rhetoric is designed to basically say to the people of Taiwan, who he regards as Chinese, um, uh, "Hey, we, we don't want to go to war with you, despite us saber rattling all the time." Uh, we don't actually want to go to war with you. What we want you guys to do is just give up and basically give in and say, you know what, this is inevitable. Uh, and we want the Americans to think that too. Um, it, it might work out for China, it might not. But I, I just don't think... I don't. I, you know, if, if uh, the, the the people in Canberra didn't make these comments and we wouldn't be talking about it, I don't think it's a bad thing that it's in the papers and people are actually discussing
1: You're, it. Does... D- 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 over the last few years, it's not just Australia that's not getting on with the PRC at the moment. China is shaking its fist at Sweden, at Canada, at Japan, at uh, it's got border skirmishes with India. On and on it goes. China doesn't have friends, really, in the world. It has <laughs> clients well, instead. Pakistan
2: is a friend. Sometimes they call them Iron Brothers or something yeah.
1: like that. Yeah. But you see, I suppose the question I'm asking is, is this wolf warrior diplomacy, really in China's long-term interest to pursue this over time?
2: Well, war warrior diplomacy is definitely not good for China's soft power. Um, it is uh, more of a sign of how it sees itself as a great power. And you think that with great power comes with great coercion. Um, it, can <laughs> just, it can just, you know, banish ban the sticks around and say, I'm a great power now, I can do... Uh, I can do great power things. I was going to say great power shit. Um, <laughs> so it, in one sense, it looks to United States, for example, of great power, and it says our oh, United States, um, they they have you know. Uh, um, interfered in other countries during the Cold War. For example, the United States have um, toppled um, democratic leg regimes, um, so there's a, a severe case of foreign interference.
1: Oh, and let's look at the invasion <laughs> of Iraq on the basis of yes, false intelligence. Yes, and more recently <laughs> uh, yeah. in the Middle East yes. and
2: also support for Israel in um, its actions on Palestine. And,
1: and the United States has paid a very high price for that. Yes. It's lost, lost of prestige uh, worldwide after it's, it's pursued. Uh, it, it's tried to put out its own fake news. Certain figures have tried to pretend that Saddam Hussein was behind the September 11 attacks, their weapons of mass destruction, the whole thing was a good idea anyway. This has really damaged American prestige and also America's will to become involved in foreign conflicts. I wonder if China can see the same problem happening for it down the track.
2: I think from China's perspective, it probably sees that as the action of a great power. And it wants to do what you want to have the power of what the United States has been doing. So it is also trying to intervene in other countries, um, trying to take over South China Sea. Um, It it just thinks that, well, that's what great powers do and that's what I am going to do. Yes, that has come at a cost for the United States in some sense, but hey, United States is still the only superpower in the world right now.
1: Um, We've got some questions coming in. Please feel free to add more to... Uh, That website, it pops up here on this little, oh, here they all are, look at that, bang. There we go, here we go, what happens to all the Chinese people here, living here, if we go to war with China? And, wow, more dystopianly, will there be internment camps like during World War II? Wow.
2: Yeah, so that is one possibility I have definitely considered, actually. Um, And that is uh, probably the biggest reason why I left the public service because I, was concerned that there will be internment camps. I didn't want to be part of that. Um, I hope not, but the the problem is when you're in a war situation, anything can happen. Human rights can be overrided. Um, People's civil liberties can be trashed. Um, Even though we like to think now that it seems so impossible that we will do these things, but if there was a war, it can happen. And it's definitely up to us to really push back against that.
1: This leads to another point about the kind of ongoing demonisation of Chinese-Australians. I asked you earlier about the absence of Chinese-Australians in more senior levels of the public service. But we know since the outbreak of the Wuhan virus that Chinese and Asian-Australians were suffering um, racist abuse in public, uh, and are we going to go into a situation where increasingly, like Australian Muslims were after September 11, where constantly they're being asked to reaffirm their loyalty to Australia again and again and again, and with all the alienation that comes from that bill?
3: I suspect so. I suspect that's kind of... I already hear about these splits in the Chinese community here about... I mean, these WeChat groups, these odd WeChat groups full of, like, old retirees in Melbourne, and some of them are, like, super patriotic to Beijing, and they're calling... It's really sort of like cultural rev because they're older people who've probably grown up in the cultural rev, and they're kind of you know, talking about so-and-so as a traitor and all this no, sort of no, stuff. Yeah. But I'm like, Hang on, these people in Melbourne or Beijing or where? But um, within the Chinese community I do hear that um, there's real sort of splits between, you know, people who are quite uh, patriotic to, to China and people who are sort of much more liberal-minded and, um, you know, you, we obviously saw that with Vicky Shu kind of copping a barrage of sort of online stuff for her outspokenness. Um, I, this is what I'm really negative about. I, I, don't, I can't see it getting easier for the Chinese The problem is also
2: that a lot of them are caught in the middle. Like, normally, if you're from another country, you wouldn't be forced to choose. People wouldn't say, well, you have to choose between Australia and New Zealand. Um, but now... I don't trust
1: those Kiwis one bit. <laughs> <laughs> they speak funny. But I am Their already hearing... <laughs>
2: I'm already hearing people being asked that question, they're being forced to choose a side. Um, And it's a lot of, uh, there's increased suspicions of Chinese Australians, um, of people with any connections to China. Um, I'm hearing stories where uh, someone wants to be, uh, basically someone uh, getting ruled out for a position in the parliament um, uh, as a staffer because they are Chinese and people are... Worried that, well, if you're Chinese, they could be connected to the Chinese Communist Party. Maybe you'll be connected to United Front. So it's much safer if we just don't hire any people from Chinese heritage.
1: There's a question here. Why do Australians like to see China as a monster instead of a land of opportunity we can work with? And I think that necessarily brings us to what's going on in Xinjiang province. At the moment, Bill, do you want to talk to Dan? Uh, I th-
3: yeah, I, I get what that. That question might be. Um, it kind of sounds like some of the things I've heard from members of uh, the business community. Who it's really tough. If just on an aside, um, for Australians trying to do business in China, it's a bloody hard market. A lot of protectionism up there. It's a difficult nut to crack. So I don't begrudge anybody from the business community, um, you know, doing what they have to do to try and make inroads uh, into the Chinese market. They're up against it. But I, I had heard sort of comments like that over the years when I'm up in Beijing from members of the business chamber in Beijing saying why is the media so bloody negative? Why are you always focusing on these sorts of things? Uh, Xinjiang is a, a kind of good example um, where I don't think the average Australian would have heard of the Uyghurs before the last few years. It's not like we have much and many cultural historic links with uh, Central Asia, <laughs> like none, really. But, no, but it does remind us of stories of uh, but
1: uh, is, Nazi Germany and Stalinist but, Russia. But, but that's exactly it. Yeah. So uh,
3: I, I, I wouldn't say naturally there would be great historic concern about the what what goes on in far west china and australia but i think because of what's happening over there the nature of it that's why people have become very concerned Um, now the way china would look at it and say it's nothing to do with you get out of it nothing to do with you foreign interference but uh yeah you literally first things first chinese government will not let um any sort of independent team in and kind of investigate it properly Uh, The official line from China is, everyone's welcome to come to Xinjiang and have a look, but you've got to be objective about it, and objective means you've got to support us. Um, That, to me, rings alarm bells. Um, So I don't know if all the various allegations, uh, some of them are really horrific. I don't know if they're true, if they're exaggerated. They might be true. But I tell you what, um, you know, what has China's government said? Yes, we do have these vocational education centres, and we are teaching people language and job skills, and, that's, and we're also teaching them anti-terrorism, anti-extremism. Um, that's putting it mildly, I think. Um, so uh, it, it speaks volumes, I think, about the... That's um, not in
1: accordance with what we hear from
3: Uyghur families in Australia. I mean, they tell a very oh, yeah, different they, story. They talk about torture, they talk about. Uh, For sterilisation,
1: fe- um, internment, all of those things. But, but I'll
3: just tell you a very quick little anecdote. So that's, that's some of the stuff you hear, yeah. which nobody can verify it. It, it. The point is the Chinese government is not transparent in any way, and these things are so horrific that you'd think you'd be on the front foot trying to. Uh, dispel it if it wasn't true. Also, you got to remember when this all began, the Chinese government claimed nothing was happening. Um, but just a little story. So over in uh, China, uh, well, down in Hong Kong, actually, when I was there, a uh, friend of a friend, she actually used to work for the ABC many years ago, uh, ethnically Kazakh, Not Uyghur, ethnically Kazakh. So she's living down... Before she went to Hong Kong, she worked in Shenzhen for a bit, down in southern China. Her mum, from Urumqi in Xinjiang, where a lot of Kazakhs are as well, came down to visit her. As soon as her mum checks into the hotel where they were staying, some sort of alarm goes off, police turn up. Hey, there's somebody from Xinjiang here who's ethnically not Han, they're Kazakh. We need to take you down to the police station and do the mugshots of you for our records. This, you know, this happened everywhere they travelled in China. Just... Can you imagine this sort of thing happening in Australia? It's just dehumanising. This is, you know, not a terrorist. This is somebody who's literally because of their race being singled out. And this was happening to people all over China if, you know, they were ethnically Uyghur or Kazakh or, or what have you. So um, that, I think, has made many Australians deeply uncomfortable about having friendly, happy relations with a government that thinks this sort of behaviour is OK.
2: I will challenge the premise of our question, though. Um, I think a lot of Australians do see China as a land of opportunities. Um, sure, there are a lot of gross human rights violations.
1: And, and China contains multitudes too. You can say exactly. China and, I suppose, more specifically, the, 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 the CCP government, I suppose, is a better way of putting that question, I think. But China, uh, it does can certainly contain... It's, it's a whole universe all of its own. Exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. So, you know, we, we see China through uh, multiple angles. I think it's, it's better that we, we don't see China through just one issue, but China is many, many different issues. It's a big land. It's a lot of people.
1: You've uh, recently had a post on your China Story blog about um, drawing uh, attention to the most recent population figures that have been published by China which which shows that population growth in China has now slowed to an absolute trickle and it's likely to go into reverse. The one China policy has been abandoned. Has China given up on trying to manage fertility, manage its population?
2: Oh, definitely not, definitely not. So I myself am a product of a one-child policy as well. Um, So China is... So f- from Chinese governments, I want to talk about China, so chi- from Chinese governments' perspective, fertility, uh, population, they're not exactly an individual choice. So under Wen child policy, there was a lot of... Um, forced uh, abortion and also forced uh, sterilisation, especially if you have one child, basically they would uh, sterilise you without even telling you. That was a common practice back in the 90s. Less common now, um, actually, I think, uh, except in Xinjiang. Um, In Xinjiang, I think that's still, unfortunately, a a practice there. Um, But uh, they are still um, using the population, so now they're moving towards more of a pro-birth, pro-fertility way. But they, they really practice what they're seeing as um, some quality birth, quality rearing. So they encourage birth for desirable population. What, the urban middle
1: class, the educated... The educated urban
2: class. So they want these people to have children, while the other side, they they still want to control, so that restricts their population. So it's a way for them to um, encourage certain population to... To uh, have more children while others, they still restrict. It
1: won't work though, will it? I mean, Singapore tried it. Singapore tried oh, setting yes, its educated elites on love cruises. I am not making this up. <laughs> to encourage them to have sex and have lots of babies together, and it did not work. The, um,
2: com- the Communist Youth League in China also um, organised date nights as well.
1: Right, Communist yeah. organised date nights. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Sexy. <laughs> wow. Um, as China, uh, I mean, you, we, people are often talking about the demographic crisis that's approaching for China. Um, more and more old people forming a larger and larger part of the population being supported by fewer and fewer young people. It's not hard to see, gain that out, is it? I mean, you can see, China doesn't want migration. Um, it, it's, it's so big already, but you can see a, a larger group of elderly being supported by a, a shrinking group of young people. Economic growth shrinking along with it, plateauing. What does that do for public support for the CCP? Are they trying to reach some sort of goal before this crisis kicks in? Because they are good at the long term and looking at these things. Bill?
3: Yeah, I sort of feel that's the big thing that's not spoken about that much uh, in the sort of... You know, China will inevitably run Asia, but it's not like... Uh Uh, It's not like it's going to be uh, all encompassing and that there won't be problems that China will face. And that's the biggest one by a mile. By 2050, one in three, I think one in three Chinese people will be of retirement age. One in three. That is a massive. Look at Japan, what's happened to Japan now. That's what's in store for China. So, um,
1: But it's not rich as Japan yet either. That's the other yeah. thing. Yeah.
3: So this, you know, I look at all this spending on the military and Belt and Road and this and that, and I do wonder how much of that will you have to start diverting to health and aged care to not leave one-third of your population uh, in a jam when they're, when they're older. Um, so this, to me, is quite a big restraint on what uh, China will be able to do in future in terms of spending money. doesn't mean it won't rise and become a dominant power. Of course it will. But, um, Are uh,
1: they looking over the horizon and seeing themselves as a much weaker country 40 years from now and therefore wanting to achieve a lot of its foreign policy yeah, goals right it looks like right really there's a
3: window now, a window up until about 2030-ish, 20, 20, 2035-ish 20, to really get things done because after that they will have to start diverting more funds, more funding towards those sorts of aged care services.
2: But it is also important to remember that China's um, system is a bit different from what we're used to because... In Australia until recently, the retired people expect the government to support them um, through the pension system. But um, in China, the pension system has almost been almost non-existent to start with. So it is the expectation is that the family will be supporting the older people. Now, of course, it's getting more and more difficult. Um, but because of that social expectation, the government doesn't actually have to spend as much money on the older people as we do here in Australia. So, that is also something we do need to take into account that the systems are a bit different.
1: I've been to China four times and I've absolutely loved every single trip I've taken. The most recent one was a book tour. For my books was published in Simplified... My first book was published in Simplified uh, Chinese in, on, the, on the mainland. It was the most thrilling book tour I've ever done. I, I know why things are the way they are, but I miss
3: the old relationship. Do you miss that, Bill? I
1: mean, how unhappy were you to be taken out of Beijing?
3: Yeah, I didn't want to go. Um, I I was really pissed off by the whole thing. Um, uh, yeah, as I said, I could kind of see things were going to get a bit worse for years, but, um, certainly, It it became pretty, for want of a better word, pretty shitty for us in the last year because nobody would talk to us. We couldn't interview anybody. But I suppose what I'm asking is is there
1: residual affection there that still lingers in in the hearts of a lot of Australians who've been going to China regularly or semi regularly um, that might be? The, the the basis for a, an improved relationship down the track when things get better?
3: Oh, I, I think, I honestly think the, the bigger of, ob- we might not agree on this, I think the bigger obstacle is on the Chinese side. It is in such an extreme nationalistic phase um, where whacking Western countries is the most politically correct thing you can do as a government official. Uh, if you're Li Jian, remember that guy posted that thing about the SAS soldier and the war crimes and... Um, you know, that guy's a bit of a rock star to the young patriotic Chinese. So I feel that uh, whatever changes might need to be made in Australia, uh, there's quite a big uh, impediment on the Chinese side these days. And uh, that, won- that might not be permanent. I hope it's not permanent. But to me, that seems like a really tough... And what do you think, Yon?
2: Well, I think... Um we can still maintain a lot of people-to-people links that even if the political relationships have deteriorated and it's probably going to become even more difficult in years to come, um, there's nothing stopping us to um, build relationships with people in China uh, or with international students from China in Australia. Um, And I think we can get a lot of benefit from
1: that. It's just one final question. Um, it says, uh, the title of Bill Bertle's book is called The Truth About China, but does he know the truth?
3: <laughs> and the answer is yes, I think Bill is a... As we had to add a blurb that said, that, <laughs> and, and the search for answers, as Zena, you're a journalist, you're trying to find what's true, what's not. I'm not saying I know the truth. I'm looking for the truth. Did, <laughs> I, did I find it? Only the reader can judge. <laughs> So that's it.
1: Please thank our seekers of the truth, Yun Zhang and Bill Bertels. Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: You've been listening to Richard Feidler, Bill Bertels and Yun Zhang, recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina
2: Throsby and I'll catch you next week.